Hello, everyone. My name is Sherry Rice, and I'm CEO of Access to Healthcare Network. Welcome to our podcast, Access to Health. Our goal is to bring you informative speakers from the healthcare industry to give you information that can help you make your healthcare decisions. Today, we are talking about high risk pregnancy and menopause. And my guest is Dr. Myron Bethel, an OBGYN specialist with renowned medical group. Welcome, Dr. Bethel. Thank you for having me. This is the second podcast that we've done. Uh, the first one aired a little while ago on uh, STDs and birth control. And because that one was so successful, I thought we could move on to a couple of other topics, and one of them being high-risk pregnancy. But before we do that, do you mind if I ask you why you wanted to be an OBGYN specialist? Well, OBGYN is a unique um, specialty in medicine in that it incorporates both uh, surgical um, skills as well as medical skills. Um, and also, uniquely, we're dealing with two patients at the same time uh, in pregnancy, the mother and the developing fetus. So it, uh, it creates a, a unique um, niche, if you will, in medicine. And um, it's very exciting. There's not a dull day that I go to the office. And how many years have you been doing this? Uh, 2020 will make my 40th year. 40th year. Right. Every single one of them, an absolute exciting special year. Well, maybe not, everyone. <laughs> but right. it's a specialty that you love. I love And it. you're yes. glad you went into it. And I still deliver babies. Um, so people are surprised at my age that I'm still delivering babies. But um, it is part of the practice, and it gives me a certain degree of joy. Oh, of course. I can't even, uh, how many babies do you think you've delivered in those you know, 40 years? I get asked that, and I lost count so long ago. <laughs> uh, but if I were to do retroactive math, it's in the 15,000 range. Oh, for goodness sakes, Dr. Right. Bethel. Well, a lot of that is because my residency program at USC um, delivered at that time in the 80s uh, the largest number of babies a year. And so we were looking at 70 babies a day. Oh, for goodness sakes. So if you that adds up really quickly. Yes, it does. <laughs> right. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, about babies to a certain degree because we're going to talk about high-risk pregnancies and fertility issues. Um, it seems like to me that women are working longer and they're having children uh, at an, a higher age. I mean, it's, it's nothing to see a woman have a child, her first child, in her mid-30s. Is that seems like a big change from, say, 20, 30 years ago. Right, and it's uh, uh, affecting um, birth rate, the birth rate nationally as well. Um, the birth rate has dropped nationally for the uh, first time in, in, in many, many, many years. And interestingly, the substrata um, of that drop shows that the, the highest drop is in the younger age group. So 21 to 29 are having less babies than uh, patients who are over 30. So yes, the 30 are still maintaining, but the total birth rate is decreasing. So in, in essence, we're seeing patients who are, are older than traditionally. And also, I think women are having less children. Right. And, you know, that's not just because they're working harder. It's because um, the, uh, they're um, accumulating debt um, in, to get through school. Uh, accumulating debt to get through school means that the, their post-school life, the first 10 years, is used to pay off all that massive debt. So when people traditionally had children in their mid to, to late 20s, now they're not able to have children until their 30s and, and mid-30s because they're paying off school debt 
uh, and that's uh, both uh, male and female in the relationship. Well, it seems like that's changed the face a little bit of OBGYN specialty as women are waiting longer to have children uh, at a later age. What is the, the span of a woman being the most fertile? Well, uh, fertility um, is acquired um, in puberty. Uh, as soon as um, uh, a regular menstrual cycle begins, um, ovulation begins to occur, then uh, pregnancy can occur and they're fertile. Of course, fertility requires a lot more than just the egg. Um, there, it's a, a tightrope of uh, different uh, things that have to fall in place for someone to become pregnant. But fertility can go from that age, uh, um, f- uh, 14, uh, through uh, 40, uh, 42, 43. And we're talking natural fertility as opposed to artificial. And tell me the difference between natural and artificial then. Well, non-stimulated. Okay. So stimulated um, uh, fertility means that in, in patients who uh, primarily who are not ovulating as a function of them having decreased ovarian reserve as they get older um, can be somewhat stimulated uh, with medications that will enhance ovulation and to allow fertility to occur when naturally it would start to to become less of a factor. So educate me, Dr. Bethel, on this. A woman at what age, or is it when she's born, has a certain amount of eggs? When she's born. When she's born. And that doesn't change, those amount of eggs. Um, you mean uh, when she's born, she's born with a certain finite number of eggs. Mm-hmm. And these eggs are essentially uh, already primed. They're, right. They've already gone through their first degree or first division. Then they stay dormant until puberty. And subsequent to that, when ovulation occurs, then um, these eggs come out. Um, it's not one egg only. There's a, um, there's a sort of an army of follicles that are developed uh, to support any ovulatory cycle. Uh, but the dominant egg comes out, and then after fertility, after after fertilization, will undergo secondary division and become the early uh, embryo. Uh, so each and every month, this can occur. So consequently, it starts to begin to uh, drain the total supply of eggs, right. um, and it 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 usually is enough to survive into the fourth decade. But science hasn't figured out a way to give that woman more eggs. No. Okay. That's what I was trying to figure out. There isn't a way to do that. No. She has a finite number of eggs. Right. And it was spread out over a certain amount of years. Right. And does it depend on the woman as to how many years it can spread out? Yes. Um, Well, obviously, if you've had um, more children, then you would be not ovulating for the period of time that you're pregnant. And if you multiply that times four or five children, you've essentially gained uh, four or five years of additional potential fertility. Oh, interesting. Right. Oh, that's very interesting. So so what are we calling um, a high-risk pregnancy then? Well, that definition is uh, changes constantly. Uh, traditionally, high-risk pregnancy was considered anyone who... Um, um, had advanced age. Advanced age was uh, an arbitrary number that was 35. And it is an arbitrary number, and it was a number that came about through old technology. I can tell you the technology has changed, and so that, that age would not be a cutoff anymore. Um, but traditionally, it was age 35. However, high-risk pregnancy 
often um, um, uh, is uh, defined as someone who also carries with them medical problems. Mm, As the age of pregnancy advances, as the patient gets older, so is their likelihood of them having associated medical problems. So it's not just age. It's not just age. So heart problems, diabetes, hypertension, um, thyroid disease, um, um, anemias of various types uh, are all sometimes um, more likely in our older age population. So when we're looking at a woman looking at having, say, a first child at age 40, then we're looking at the total woman and the fact that at age 40 there could be other factors involved. Absolutely. That maybe wouldn't be there when you're in your 20s. Absolutely. And so how has that changed the face of OBGYN specialty? Well, from the standpoint of, of um, how we counsel the patient, um, also from the standpoint of delivery, I would have to say that advancing age has increased our, our incidence of operative deliveries. So that means cesarean sections are increased as opposed to um, in the older days when our population was uh, sub-30 um, the chances of them having um, a, a vaginal delivery were greater than C-section. Now, in some uh, areas in our country, uh, C-section rate is approaching 40%. Oh, wow. And why, when you're, as you get older, is a C-section preferable? It's not preferable, but when you start factoring in uh, medical problems. So, for example, a diabetic patient who is on insulin um, because of the intrinsic risk to the developing baby, um, will need to be delivered earlier than someone who doesn't have diabetes. So that requires intervention. When we intervene earlier than, uh, say, term, because of the underlying medical issue, it also increases their risk of cesarean section. Um, also, uh, I would have to, I would have to say that that um, our worsening diet in our society um, plays a significant role. Um, I think that there's a contest in some of our patients as to how much weight they can actually gain um, <laughs> in pregnancy. But well, what, uh, is the, what is the appropriate amount? When I had my children, 20 pounds was what they said you should gain. Well, now the, uh, the, the decision is based upon what their pre-pregnant weight was, you know, patients who are uh, obese or morbidly obese are uh, advised to gain less weight than someone who is of normal weight prior to pregnancy. So the range can be anywhere from, say, 11 pounds up to um, um, the normal recommendation is 27 to 32 pounds. But we have patients who are uh, fast approaching 70, 80, and 90 pounds in pregnancy. Um if you factor in 70, 80, 90 pounds into pregnancy, that um, obviously plays some role in um, increasing operative deliveries. I mean, the, the, the bony pelvis um, is, is not going to change. You know, uh, evolutionarily speaking, we're, we're, we're uh, homo sapiens. We have a certain bony pelvis, and so it has certain finite um, 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 metrics to it. Uh, if you add in tissue on top of that, which is essentially our fat, our muscle, our, um, and, um, and, and our veins and arteries, and if you start expanding that with uh, fat, um, it only decreases the available space for the baby to go through. 
Well, that was uh, that was an interesting thing to listen to. I know, <laughs> and of course, I'm I'm 70 years old, so I had my children quite a while back. But it was you don't want to gain much over 20 pounds because the baby would be too big. That's what they were saying to us back in 191970. Well, yeah, it it's not simple as that. It's not one to one. You have patients who gain weight and their babies are not big. Right. Um, so it's it's not one to one, and and I don't want to have people think that it is. <laughs> But um, everything in life is, is uh, has multiple causes, and and this is not this is not like uh, any others. It definitely has multiple causes. Well, let's talk a little bit about fertility and uh, the fact that women are trying to get pregnant at a later age. Is that increasing the need for fertility? Uh, that have fertility complications, a need for a specialist such as yourself who can talk to them about fertility? Um, yes, if you've delayed um, pregnancy um, for reasons uh, that we mentioned, um, school debt, uh, working career, uh, family, housing, and then you find that uh, you're in your mid to late 30s and you have some underlying um, ovulatory dysfunction or some other dysfunction, or you develop an infection and you have tubal disease uh, from previously uh, unknown infections, then yes, it's going to play a role in how we manage you. Uh, fertility is, uh, issues are very common, and we deal with them by uh, going through a step-by-step -step process to evaluate what is the cause of this uh, fertility issue. And what about miscarriages? You know, it... it Miscarriages weren't talked a lot about, um, and so we didn't know how common they were. Well, it, we talked about the type rope of fertility, and that there are multiple factors involved. So um, the first trimester um, where most of your miscarriages are going to occur, and that can be somewhere up to a rate of 20 to 25% per um, pregnancy. Jeez. So the number is much higher than people think. Um, that means that all this tightrope uh, requires everything to work exactly right. And there are many instances where things are a little bit off kilter and they don't work exactly right. So consequently, the first 12 weeks are, are wrought with possibilities of, of miscarrying. Um, if you were to talk to any of your female relatives, your siblings, you'll find their reproductive history that they've had one or two miscarriages in the process. Mm -hmm. It's not uncommon. Um, some of the common things that are causing that are usually hormonal aberrations. Um, so in a person who is in their 30s, I usually advise if they come to us pre-conception, pre-conception counseling, I advise them for us to look at their hormone function. Um, uh, and this is probably not nationally recommended. This is just something that I do it through experience because every pregnancy is premium. And when you start getting into your first pregnancy in your mid-30s, you're talking super premium. So it's, um, it's incumbent upon us to offer um, them information prior to pregnancy that will give them an ability to determine whether um, they will get pregnant with help uh, medically or without help medically. That makes good sense. And so uh, it's sort of a, again, you talk about planning, and we talked about that with uh, STDs and being able to plan yes. and with birth control. Um, 
there is a certain planning that needs to be done, it sounds like, for a woman that is 35 or older, uh, and to be able to come in and plan with their physician. Right. And it's actually a whole um, category of visit. It's called the preconception counseling. And um, it's incumbent upon uh, the patient who's planning their pregnancy to, to think about that because uh, occupational um, issues, household toxins, uh, environmental toxins, underlying health issues, both male and female, all play a role in whether you're going to have a successful pregnancy. And because a lot of people become pregnant and are not aware truly of the pregnancy until six or seven weeks of gestation, you're halfway through organogenesis at that time. So um, it's incumbent upon you to get that information before, con- before you conceive. So you mentioned household toxins. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Uh, pesticides are the, the biggest um, uh, source of uh, problems. Uh, but there are many chemicals uh, um, uh, that are used for cleaning the, the house um, and scrubbing um, our stubborn stains, if you will. Um, so those things need to be um, taken into consideration when you're um, conceiving. So what about the age of the father? How does that play into it when you have a, a woman that, say, is 35 or over and you have a father that's 35 and over? Well, unlike uh, the traditional age 35 for a female, there really isn't an age uh, where we consider the man um, uh, high risk. Uh, however, if you were to look at where the studies have been done, it usually puts uh, men in certain age brackets. Uh, over age 40 for a man is considered um, likely to put, um, potentially play a role. Um, but there, it's a very weak association between paternal age and um, uh, a high-risk pregnancy um, because there haven't been um, reliable testing that shows that it increases the risk of anomalies. Uh, there have been some uh, that show that there's weak association with increased risk of anomalies as the, the male advances in age. And in some cases, there have been some discussion um, about whether there is an association between an advanced paternal age and autism. Um, this has not been universally uh, accepted or proven, but it has to be taken into consideration over age 40. And in fact, uh, over age 45 is probably more likely. Well, let's talk about genetic testing. I know I grew up in the age of amniocentesis, but that's not is that still done? I don't think so. It's a different genetic testing, right? Uh, it's still available, but it's not routinely done. And it, of, of note, amniocentesis is where the age 35 um, oh, high risk that age came, came from. Yeah. It was a function of what was the risk of doing the amniocentesis versus the risk of chromosomal anomalies. And uh, those two risks bifurcated at age 35. And that's where that cutoff came. Mm-hmm. Uh, since we don't do amnios routinely anymore, that's why I said age 35 is no longer considered high risk per se. Uh, uh, there are um, available uh, testing um, that can be done um, for both male and female. Uh, you know, usually, uh, and what we're looking at as a, a male grows older, whether they've had other children. And if they've had other children, we don't use a reflex to doing chromosomal analysis. Uh, however, um, with the advent of Healthy Nevada, uh, 23andMe, 
there are a lot of people who actually have their genetic, uh, their genome available to us uh, when they come in for counseling. So if a woman's over 35 and she comes uh, and gets pregnant, do you recommend that she do genetic testing if she hasn't had it done? Not routinely. Okay. Right. Same with the father. There's right. not routinely. Not routinely. Right. Well, let's walk through this maybe a little bit step by step. A woman comes and um, she's had a couple of miscarriages and she comes because she uh, is over 35 and she'd like to have a child. Um, the first steps, it sounds like, is to do some hormonal uh, blood work for her to see where she's at with her hormones. And then where does does it move into uh, offering her medication well, traditionally, because uh, miscarriages are so common, um, we did not call someone who um, habitually miscarried. We did not consider it of medical note until it was three consecutive. I would have to say that that is old thinking. Um, and with, as I said, the premium pregnancy in the mid-30s, we don't wait until they have three consecutive before we start to evaluate. Um, we do evaluate hormones first um, because that's where the bang for the buck is um, in terms of ovulatory dysfunction. But there are other hormones that can play a role. The thyroid plays a role. Um, the pituitary plays a role. And all of these have to be evaluated. Um, also of note, as people advance in age, they can develop problems. And sometimes these are genetic problems that are not chromosomal such as uh, their risk of what we call thrombophilias. That means that they have circulating antibodies in their, their system um, as a function of genetics or as a function of age, which may slightly increase their risk, say, of blood clotting, but it also um, will increase their risk of miscarriage. So that has to be considered. Uh, ovarian reserve is also evaluated. And then we, we get into looking at the, the male part of the equation. Um, 25 to 40% of infertility is due to the man. Oh, interesting. I didn't know it was so large. Mm -hmm. And if so, in evaluating both the uh, man and the woman, when would you start them on medication? And then when would somebody lead into in vitro fertilization? Well, that's a good question. First, you need to um, um, see if they have a problem that the medication could conceivably fix. Um, you know, it's not, oh, just give me a fertility pill and it's just going to enhance my fertility. Fertility pills are not without side effects. So first you need to see that they have a problem that this pill potentially can fix. Um, and then we give them a trial in, of, of trying the medication and we follow them very closely. You know, um, it's not, let me, you take this prescription and come back when you're pregnant. Um, we do a monthly evaluation to see if the medicine's effective. Does it need to be titrated up or down um, to increase their, their uh, ovulatory response? Um, this medicine has a finite period of time that is potentially effective. So four to five months of this treatment, then you need to look at whether or not uh, the fertility uh, infertility issue is not only um, ovulatory dysfunction, but maybe something else. Do they have tubal disease? Um, are there other factors involved? Uh, um, is there mucus too thick um, to allow sperm transit? And of course, um, is there adequate sperm? 
Um, are the sperm that the um, significant other makes, are they normal? Do they move well? All of these things have to be taken in consideration. And uh, at Renown, we do do this degree of fertility assessment. Uh, when you get to having multifactorial etiologies of infertility, that's when we consider uh, referral to a more advanced reproductive um, practitioner. And explain um, for me, educate me on exactly what in vitro fertilization is. In vitro, by definition, means outside of the body. So as opposed to in vivo, which means in the body. So it means that the fertilization process takes place outside of the body, traditionally in the test tube, if you will. It's actually in a Petri dish, mm-hmm. um, where the sperm and the egg are, are um, fertilized outside of the womb. And then um, it allows uh, this now early fertilized egg to undergo certain divisions of cells to a certain point, And then uh, it's reintroduced back into the previously primed uterus to allow implantation. So if you had a woman who uh, it was learned that the uh, that her husband, that their sperm count was very low and they decided to use a donor, it wouldn't have to be in vitro. No, you could do don- donor inseminations, mm-hmm. right. So, But sometimes you can mix donor uh, and the significant other sperm together. It's a hybrid to allow uh, inseminations, and therefore there's still a genetic possibility that the male is the genetic father of the developing embryo. Oh, that's interesting. And what about surrogacy? It seems like that has gained some momentum in the last decade. Right, and some some nations um, um, globally don't allow surrogacy, um, but we do. Uh, but um, it needs to be in a situation that is controlled uh, legally and medically and ethically, um, because it can become uh, quite convoluted. Um, for example, there are some children born today who actually can have three mothers. Um, they can have um, a gestational mother, a genetic mother, and a social mother. Oh, interesting. So um, surrogacy primarily deals with someone who is a gestational uh, mother, the person who actually is the carrier of the pregnancy. Now, that does not have to mean that they're genetically related to the developing embryo. Um, right. That would right. be like in vitro, right? Well, the- in vitro with your own eggs or with your husband's right. own eggs is still right. genetic. Yeah. But you could take in vitro of a donor egg and a donor right. sperm and, and put then it in the put surrogate. it into the surrogate. Right. And then that person is the gestational mother. Right. Um, who in some nations doesn't have any legal rights. You know, it's interesting. We're talking about this in a very factual way. Right. And that's appropriate. And yet I don't know anything that has more emotion to it, perhaps, than having a baby or wanting to have a baby or somebody who wants to have a baby and can't. Right. So how, how in your profession, how do you swim those waters? Because it seems like uh, every woman's different and unique. We all have different stories. Um, but it's a highly emotional time. It is a highly emotional time. And actually, to be honest, we are learning um, as this process develops. Um, and we find interesting issues like... Um, uh, for example, uh, some patients um, have um, elected to ask their their siblings, their sister, uh, to actually be the surrogate. So that means that the sister is a gestational character, but all uh, carrier, 
but also mm -hmm. has a genetic um, a relationship to developing embryo. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, when born, they may have, both of them may be both genetic and social uh, mothers to uh, the developing baby. Um, so that becomes extremely complicated. Um, it's, it's wonderful because uh, to have someone who can't get pregnant actually have what is in essence their child, whether it's a genetic child or a social child, um, over, over time becomes less relevant. Well, it's, it's rather profound that uh, we are told as young women, don't get pregnant, don't get pregnant, and uh, because that's bad, it's bad. And then for some women, they use birth control all those years, and then they can't get pregnant. Highly, um, highly emotional for them. Right. Um, in our profession, the longer you're in it, the more you realize that sometimes things aren't fair. It's true. Things right. are not fair. Right. They're not. Um, that somebody who wants to have a baby can't have one, and somebody who perhaps isn't going to uh, treat their children the way they should can have quite a few children. That is the irony right. of all of this. What are What's some of the advice then that you give to uh, a husband and wife or partners who are in your office and they really, really would like to have a child and it's looking like maybe they, they can't have one? Well, I think that um, we, we it's, it's, it's often people are putting it off. And I think it's uh, my responsibility as their healthcare uh, provider to bring up the topic um, and bring up the topic with each advancing annual visit. Um, so, uh, what are your thought processes about this or that? Having a child, are you planning it? Um, when are you planning it? And to put it into medical perspective in terms of the risks that they develop as each year advances by, goes by. Um, and then we essentially um, allow them to start to have this discussion at home. And then they come back saying, yes, I think now we're ready. Uh, because the earlier you find that you're ready means the longer that you have to actually be successful. Mm, good point. What about freezing somebody's eggs? That seems to also be something that in the last decade more and more women are doing. Uh, it's available. And certainly uh, I've had patients who've had um, certain malignancies who um, require chemotherapy and have frozen their eggs um, to allow um, post-chemo um, pregnancies to occur. Um, once again, vis-a-vis um, -vis surrogacy, freezing eggs also um, um, increases the chance of significant uh, legal and ethical issues, specifically with um, divorce, um, who owns the eggs, um, and uh, so on and so forth which I would have to say is, is in the field of advanced reproductive technology, and I would pass that on. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, I think one of the things that I've certainly taken from this conversation, Dr. Bethel, is that communication is key. Absolutely. Absolutely key. That, um, as you know, when you are thinking of getting pregnant, or even before that, to have the discussion with your your OBGYN specialist, as to what are the ramifications of waiting. Right. And what are the ramifications of waiting past 35? You know, um, knowledge is power. Right. Sometimes it's prudent to wait, and sometimes it's prudent not to wait. Right. 
Well, thank you. I'd like to move on to our next topic. Um, we've talked about high-risk pregnancy and fertility issues. Well, let's talk about that word that um, was in my life a few years ago. It's called menopause. <laughs> that, has, that has kind of a, you know, it's fascinating. It's, uh, it can be a tough time. It really can. And I'd be hard to even pinpoint uh, pinpoint exactly why. But it, what age does menopause naturally occur and what is menopause? Well, it's interesting that we have this terminology menopause, premenopause, and postmenopause. Ah. And uh, all of those are um, need to be defined. Uh, first, the definition, there is no postmenopause. You enter the menopause and you don't get out. <laughs> Good to hear. Good to hear. But there are early menopausal symptomatologies that most people attribute to the menopause, which are actually um, part of the perimenopause, mm -hmm. which is when the egg starts to become less reliable coming out where ovulatory dysfunction is more common in the late 40s. Then it's manifested by f um, rapid um, fluxes in uh, estrogen production, up and down, as I, as I call it, like a roller coaster. Consequently, that causes you know, the vascular tree, the blood vessels in the body, to go through vasoconstriction and vasodilatation. That causes hot flashes followed by rapid freezing. Um, this also uh, causes significant irritability, emotional ability, inability to sleep. This good is times. The, the good, good times. times. Good times. <laughs> this is the, the perimenopause. Interesting of note is that once the estrogen productions become essentially non-existent, when they become lower and lower, when menstrual cycles stop, then that's when you enter the menopause and the hot flashes actually go away. But now the long-term effects of menopause begin, and it takes 20 to 30 years of being in the menopause when you really begin to see the long-term sequelae, which are rapid demineralization of the bone, causing osteoporosis and bone fractures, where you see progressive genitourinary atrophy, which basically results in a dry, non-pliable, parched uh, um, vagina and bladder. So you see more likely problems with incontinence and urinary frequency and urgency. And this is a long-term manifestation of estrogen deficiency. Uh, there's also some other things that can occur, cognitive dysfunction. Um, so menopause, the longer we live, the longer you're, you'll be in menopause. So it's, it's smart to have um, a plan. Uh, how am I going to approach menopause? What am I going to do to ameliorate these long-term symptoms? Um, um, and, you know, is this a good time of my life or is this a bad time? And I think it's a good time. But uh, from discussing this with my patients, obviously I haven't had the, <laughs> the, the roller coaster estrogen <laughs> Um, um, production that my patients have, but uh, I certainly have seen it happen. Um, and it it's not um, a fun time, as you say. Uh, so we're talking about perimenopause, right. premenopause, and that starts at what age? 48 
uh, to 51 is the age of menopause. So consequently, that perimenopause can start as early as 45. Oh, okay. So if we go back to what we talked about a few minutes ago on high-risk pregnancy and fertility, if someone's trying to get pregnant uh, for the first time or even second time in their early 40s, they literally could be bumping right up against uh, premenopause. Right. And that's why they have less ovarian reserve and um, therefore less reliable estrogen production, therefore more emotional ability. Right, because they have two things going on at once. Exactly. And so a woman who is perimenopause who gets pregnant, that's sort of a different scenario for that woman as far as pregnancy. Yes, and indeed I've had patients who are, were in that period of uh, perimenopause who became pregnant, delivered their baby, and never had a menstrual period again. Can I ask you, the oldest woman you've delivered a baby for? Uh uh, spontaneous or or artificial? Well, I don't know. Well, okay. Uh, spontaneous would be they got pregnant without medication. Oh, okay. All right, so we're looking at 44. Okay, and what about? Um, 54. 54? Right, for artificial. Dang. First baby? Right. Whoa. Uh, Kenny Jackson. All righty. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder how tired she was. <laughs> so... Wow. Well, yeah, and yeah. you know there is a lot of responsibility um, and consideration when you are becoming pregnant in that age group. How long are you going to survive? So a woman can get pregnant in perimenopause, but she can't get pregnant in menopause because in menopause you're not ovulating. Right. God, see, look, I paid attention. You really did. Yeah, I did. That was good. You really did. Yeah. So it's the perimenopause that is... The culprit. Yes, it gives us... Heartburn, to say the least. Right, um, and, yeah. and it is, I, it's one of those things that you ask the patient the question and you get affirmative answers up and down the line. You know, irritability, my family is having difficulties with me. I have vaginal dryness. I wake up um, in the middle of the night throwing the covers off. Um, I start crying at the drop of a hat uh, with movies and commercials even. Um, so... Uh, you know, this kind of um, thing is really manifest in the perimenopause. So what do you say to a woman who comes in and she's literally (laughs) sobbing and saying, my life is, you know, is a mess. And she's, uh, you know, a woman who's had great control over her life and she's done what she wanted. And the next thing you know, she's an absolute mess. Well, it's our job to, um, to ameliorate these symptoms. Um, I would have to say that we can't take care of all of them because uh, some of the treatments require them to be in the menopause as opposed to on the cusp in the perimenopause. So uh, we can try to control. There are some non-hormonal medications that are available out um, that will not only control the emotional ability, uh, irritability, but also the associated depression that goes along with it. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't, when we talked high risk, we didn't talk about uh, postpartum depression. Very common. Very common, more common with women that have high risk pregnancies or just getting more more common in pregnancy? So you would have to say that as a woman gets older, more likely that they have either genetic or pre-existing um, depression um, with life. Consequently, that means statistically they're more at risk for postpartum depression um, because of that. So if, uh, if you do the equation, 
yes, a high-risk older patient who may or may not have some pre-existing depression will have more likely have postpartum depression. And what are some of the symptoms of postpartum depression? Depression that lasts past the typical baby blues, which would be the first two weeks postpartum, which is a function of rapidly dropping hormone levels um, vis-a-vis the perimenopause. Um, rapid up and down roller coaster hormone function. Um, so uh, you know, essentially, um, you you're looking at uh, the inability to handle the daily life chores, uh, the inability to get out of bed, um, rapidly um, changing emotions, crying, uh, insomnia, and the feeling of being an inadequate person and an inadequate mother. Those are manifest signs of postpartum depression. Mm. And in perimenopause, some of those same symptoms plus other physical symptoms are what happens for a woman. Right. Um, along with um, headaches, weight gain, insomnia, emotional symptoms, memory decline, vaginal dryness, urinary symptoms, hot flashes, night sweats, and irregular vaginal bleeding makes one want to do that five, four or five times in their lifetime. <laughs> 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 well, um, it is it is quite um, 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 a major change in life. It is a transition, you know. But if you go back to um, when someone was um, prepubescent, uh, when they weren't menstruating and they did not have all of these emotional up and downs, the transition to teenage um, with uh, pu- puberty is just as um, is manifest in all of the different um, symptoms, um, which we call teenagers. You know, they difficult to get along with their parents, um, being emotional, crying, throwing, slamming the door. Um, those are things um, in that you see early on that are again seen uh, in the perimenopause. Well, let's talk about male menopause. It seems like the women get the little short end of the stick there, Doctor Bethel. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree with you. Um, there isn't a traditional male menopause, although uh, I well, are... it's a sports car and a blonde. You know, you just answered, you just said what I was going to say. <laughs> um, I, would, I would argue that um, watching sports instead of playing sports um, uh, um, changes in body habitus, inability to, um, to uh, co-mingle and be uh, a, um, a meaningful part of society is male menopause. Uh And you see this in in the 40s um, in uh, a lot of people. Well, let's talk about hormonal replacement for women. Okay. Because um, probably 30 years ago, that seemed like that was the treatment du jour that you gave hormone replacement. But it's not today, is it? Well, it depends upon what your ultimate goal is. uh, understand uh, people are being societies being educated by results from studies that were done for reasons other than what we usually give hormone replacement therapy for um, hormone replacement therapy should take care of the long-term genital urinary atrophy it should take care of hot flashes and essentially that's it osteoporosis prevention those are the three top things that hormone replacement therapy should do we don't uh, give hormone replacement therapy, or nor did we ever give hormone replacement therapy to improve heart disease. And if you are aware of some of the studies that came out in the, uh, the 90s, they were looking at whether it improved heart disease. Well, it 
really was never our intent to do that. Um, and it doesn't, by the way. Um, but we found that um, certain hormone replacement therapy increased the risk of breast cancer. So actually, um, a large percentage of people got off of hormone replacement therapy as a result of that, even though, number one, they did not look or dwell deep into the statistics of the study to realize that the number of people who actually had their breast cancer rate increase was only 8 per 10,000. So the number wasn't that great, but it was statistically significant. So a large percentage of people got off hormone therapy and then one or two years later came back because they couldn't tolerate the symptoms that they were experiencing. So we've now evolved to tailoring hormone replacement therapy to number one, a particular patient's needs and what the particular goals are. So a patient who's in their 50s who just went or just got into the menopause they have different needs than someone who's in their 60s or 70s. And so, no, we wouldn't recommend full oral systemic hormone replacement therapy in a 70-year-old. But that patient may actually benefit from topical estrogen treatment to treat genitourinary atrophy. Understandable. And what about a hysterectomy? Does that automatically put a woman into menopause? Uh, no, um, because a hysterectomy, by definition, just means the uterus. Um, and also it means the uterus and cervix. Uh, it does not mean the ovaries, and the ovaries are the source of menopause. So if we, unless you take off the ovaries as well, which I would say we traditionally used to do an age cutoff and say we recommend you, your ovaries be removed uh, if you're over 45. That's no longer the advice that we give because it's been shown that patients who have their ovaries actually have long, greater longevity than those who do not. And these symptoms, I think um, one of the things is how to, to mitigate them. But I also know that there's a whole lot of what we call natural products out there over the counter that say that they will mitigate these symptoms. Any comment on that? Well, there's a lot of things over the counter that say a lot of things. I would say that there are definitely other sources of estrogen other than the estrogen that you see from the ovary. There are animal sources, there are plant sources. There are significant plant sources, um, uh, phytoestrogens, which um, if you were to actually delve into the sources of that, I find that soybeans are probably the biggest, most reliable source of phytoestrogens on the market. And there are people who use uh, soybeans and other isoflavones uh, in their dietary um, intake, which they use to ameliorate some of the symptoms. The problem is, is that the, there is no reliability in terms of its effectiveness, no reliability in terms of the daily concentration or dose that you're going to be receiving. So it is possible because you remember high flashes comes not from the absolute low level of estrogen, but from the um, fluxing up and down roller coaster levels. So if you have um, a teaspoon of soybeans today and you do not do it tomorrow, you could potentially be having a hot flash tomorrow because you're dropping down from the estrogen that you got the previous day. So. That is the, the quagmire that people are in when they are looking at totally natural. And remember, osteoporosis is a real thing. Um, there are more people that um, 
collapse as a function of fracture, pneumonia, splinting, um, have death in hospitalization from osteoporosis than have ever gotten um, um, a side effect from HRT. Interesting. And so when talking to a woman about many of these symptoms, I'm sure the discussion has to evolve around diet, exercise. A lot of the things that are good for us and can help with the depression and help with the weight gain and the insomnia and everything. Right. It is, it is a good phase of life, and it is a phase when you can actually redefine yourself. So, educate, uh, um, so exercise is extremely important. Um, hydration is extremely important. Rest is extremely important. And adequate, normal nutrition is extremely important. All of these together, if you um, um, sort of work on them, will result in a healthier lifestyle, which will result in better sleep which will result in better body habitus and um, better self-esteem. All of this will aid the, the transition into the menopause. I can't speak for all women, but I certainly can speak for myself that once you're over the hump, uh, being menopausal is not such a bad thing. Uh, you know, people are living longer and longer in menopause. And it's if, if you want quality of life in menopause, living longer and longer, then... The ages 50 through 60 really have to be looked at as an age of rejuvenation um, as opposed to um, accepting um, long-term sequelae of menopause and I'm getting older. This is the time to rejuvenate because if you do that, you'll ensure that long life, you'll ensure that quality of life, and you'll have better self-esteem. So it sounds like a woman should start having conversations with her OBGYN specialist around 40 years old right about menopause right and get as much information as she can have with it yes and arm herself with some things she can do when some of these symptoms occur right and and really reju life rejuvenation it's never it's never too late to start and the the premenopause or the perimenopause the menopause is the best time to do it well, thank you, Dr. Bethel. We've been talking about uh, high-risk pregnancies today and menopause, two vital topics. And thank you, uh, Dr. Myron Bethel, OBGYN specialist with Renowned Medical Group. Thank you for being on and giving us all this valuable information. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For a list of future podcasts, go to accesstohealthcare.org slash podcast.